and welcome once again to EWTN's Bookmark. I'm Doug Keck, your host. It's a pleasure to have an old friend, Mike Aquilina, back on the program. Africa and the Early Church, the Almost Forgotten Roots of Catholic Christianity, is published by our friends at Emmaus Road. And also we'll talk a little bit about Fathers of the Faith, a series of four books that Mike has out as well, all available through our EWTN Religious Catalog, EWTNRC.com for all things Catholic. Hey, it's good to see you again. That's great to be back, Doug. That's right. That's right. We've been doing this for so many years. That's right. That's right. Absolutely. And uh, we always invite you when you're, you're back here on Jeanette quite often on program, obviously on with Father Mitch back in the last fall. So uh, let's talk about Africa in the early church, the almost forgotten roots of Catholic Christianity. Now, they're not forgotten anymore because you wrote this book. So, <laughs> I hope that's so, true. So we brought this forward. What made you decide to focus on this? Well, because they're almost forgotten, okay. you know, and that's not a good thing. People forget where we've come from, and I think especially for Latin Christians, you know, Western Christians, Roman Catholics, it's good for us to know where so much of our Latin Christian culture came from. Now. We call ourselves mm -hmm. Roman Catholics, and we know that the Romans spoke Latin, so we assume that that's our background, mm -hmm. that that's our spiritual heritage. But really, a lot of Latin culture from the first century, second century, third century, came from North Africa. North Africa at that time, Roman North Africa, right. was undergoing this literary renaissance, a cultural renaissance, a renaissance in all of the, the, the legal sciences mm -hmm. and, and, and other sciences as well. Um, so, so there was a great, great uh, flourishing at that right. time, right. and then the influence was running that way. Right. Well, it's interesting, even just the simple idea of kind of thinking about the way we think about Africa yeah. as a continent, and in some ways we bifurcate it as well. Yes, we, we do tend to think of the North and the, and the rest of the continent, and the Romans and the other people at that time did likewise. And so, when they talked about Africa, they meant different things. Well, they had different provinces mm -hmm. in the larger landmass, the continent right. that we call Africa. Right. So, uh, uh, Egypt and the countries around it were, you know, one Roman province mm -hmm. based in in Egypt, in Alexandria, uh, and Roman Africa really was based in Carthage, mm -hmm. and it, it includes, um, uh, you know, what we now know as um, Morocco, Algeria, uh, Libya. Libya, yeah, right. So, yeah, uh, Libya. so those countries uh, were were a, a different world, really. Right. Latin speaking, as opposed to the Greek speaking uh, Egypt. Okay, I see. And then you also have obviously Ethiopia. Yes, which, which was another which, world which is entirely. Another world entirely. Yeah. Uh, so you say the first thing you have to know about this book. This is not a book about race. Mm -hmm. The Africa we're talking about is a land of all kinds of race, and from dark-skinned Ethiopians to blonde Germanic barbarians. That's interesting to, re to realize that. Um, and we're interested in what, why they thought the way they did, and why they looked the, the way they did, uh, was because of that situation, the way history happened. Yeah, you know, uh, the, the, the ancients did not make racial distinctions yeah, the way we really, do. That's really interesting, the way you say it. It was a class thing, right? Uh, yeah, you know, money, is, money is what, what gave you value, but mm -hmm. they really did not um, value one race, one color uh, over another. Augustine makes uh, reference to this, and St. Augustine is, is the great mm -hmm. African Christian writer, but he makes references in passing once. He said, he, you know, he says he's a North African. Mm -hmm. He said, and the, the Ethiopians have darker skin than I do, and the, the Gauls, the French, mm -hmm. have lighter skin than right. I do. But he just mentions this as a fact. It's not any kind of cultural valuation. You say Africa is a flashpoint in our debates today. Many people will hear what they think 
a person like me would say. <laughs> what do you mean? Well, you know, this book really came out of an article that I wrote mm -hmm. about Africa and the early church, and in it, uh, uh, you know, different people took me to task, mm -hmm. all right, uh, because, um, because some people said I had no right to write about, about Africa because I'm not, I, I don't have any African uh, uh, ancestry. Right, now, okay. I, I probably do because I'm Sicilian mm -hmm. and, and the Africans owned Sicily for right. a while. That's how the Romans got into the empire business because they wanted Sicily back. Well, you had Scipio <laughs> Africanus, right? right? I mean, right. one of the great so, generals. So, uh, so, so people were, were, were writing that way because they think that race somehow uh, or ancestry or, or cultural identity mm -hmm. somehow equips you to write about history. And, and I, I don't think that's true. Right. I think that history should help us to transcend differences. Uh, you know, we have to, to check our prejudices. We have to be aware of our prejudices. Right. So you undergo a certain examination of conscience whenever you write history, even a popular history like mm -hmm. this. But I think that, that history really belongs to all of us. Right. You say our Roman liturgy actually developed in North Africa. Some of our most important theological ideas developed in Egypt. And then there's a fascinating case, you say, of Ethiopia, a glorious Christian civilization that was cut off from much, most of uh, the Christian world for a long, long time. Mm -hmm. And ultimately you say, and you quote, as the ancient Greeks and Romans used to say, always something new from Africa. What did they mean by that, do you think? Well, Alexandria in Egypt was the intellectual capital of antiquity. It had the greatest library in antiquity. The kings there tr tried to get every book that had been written mm -hmm. into the, onto the shelves of the, their library. Uh, so it had this reputation as an intellectual center. And so much of, the, um, of theology, uh, the, the reasoned reflection on Revelation began there. Mm -hmm. You know, we find it happening with the Jews uh, and, and great figures like Philo of Alexandria, but early on we find Christians like Pantanus who founded a school there, followed by Clement of Alexandria who was erudite <laughs> beyond belief and he, he taught classes. We have right. his lecture notes and they're amazing because he knew the sciences, he knew the arts, and he, he managed to incorporate all of these mm -hmm. things into his Christian teaching. And then there's Origen who, who really dominated biblical studies and invented critical biblical studies as we know them today. So all of these great figures of that time produced new things, mm -hmm. you know, out of um, out of the, their reflection on, on biblical revelation. And, and you talk about, uh, you know, you talk about Gaul, you talk about the Vandals, you talk about the Arian heresy being something that happened. Why were they attracted to the Arian heresy? Well, you know, uh, <laughs> I, I think that, that they were attracted to it because of Arius's packaging, mm -hmm. really. The songs or the... The, the songs and the, the slogans right. and, and the fact that rich people liked it. Oh, okay. All of these things together made it very attractive. Okay. Arius was kind of a genius at promotion and he went from place to place schmoozing with the, the muckety-mucks and, and people saw that Arianism was attracted attractive to them, right. those people, and I want to be like them, right. I want to be rich. Right. So this Arianism Especially as you indicated, the class was really the most important thing at the time in the Roman culture. You see, as we'll soon see, Roman Africa was already a complicated heap of tribes. Nations in ancient time has only grown more complicated since. Now you call it an upside down view of Africa and the idea that even in North Africa today, we usually think of it as being Arab. Yeah. Right, today. Right. But that's after the Arab invasions, which came 
after the time of the church fathers. Right. So, uh, so it's, a, it's a, a different cultural composition now than it was then. But it's interesting because so many of the peoples who were there even before the Romans, the, you know, uh, who spoke the Punic language, the Berber language, mm -hmm. are still there today. And they're still using kind of the, um, uh, the, the descendants of those languages, even today. Uh, so Africa, Africa was more complicated mm -hmm. than, uh, than it, it seemed at face value. It became a Roman colony after the Punic Wars, when it was, right. it was crushed, uh, the city of Carthage was crushed, um, and it was colonized by, by Latins. But those Latins mm -hmm. were really influenced in time by the peoples who lived around them, mm -hmm. and that I think is what led to the cultural flourishing, that renaissance I was talking about earlier, that eventually led to a Christian flourishing and a Christian renaissance and a great influence on the European peoples. So what, how did Christianity come to that, that Africa, that, let's say to North Africa? Did that come naturally out of Palestine and, and, and Judea? Did it go up to Rome and then come down from Rome? How did, how did it get there? We don't know, and, okay. and, the, and the, the truth is that in a lot of cities, we don't know how Christianity got there, mm -hmm. but we know that it was fairly well developed by the year 170, when suddenly Christianity emerges in the historical record, the documentary record, the court records mm -hmm. in North Africa. Mm -hmm. uh, because by that time, we have a, a large number of people, 12 people being tried. We have their court transcript. Okay. We have the interrogation. So we know certain things about them. We know that they were well organized. They know that we know that they were well educated. They were people who had books. Mm -hmm. The church had already by that time been established established enough to produce people like this mm -hmm. uh, who, who appeared in the courtroom. So the beginnings are really shrouded in mist. Uh, but what we know is that by about the year 170, there is a Christian church there and there is a real Christian intellectual life. In 190 AD, mm -hmm. Tertullian is boasting that all of the trades, all of the fields of endeavor, every level of, mm -hmm. uh, of government had been infiltrated by Christians and there were Christians very influential in all those places. Right. So he, said, he, he, he laughs and he says, we've left you nothing but your temples. Mm -hmm. So by his time, 190, Christianity was that right. widespread. Okay, and, the, uh, and you also allude to the fact that thanks to the Roman military, building their own interstate roadway, which, you know, the Appian Way, et cetera, places that still exist even today, Roman, I wish they built roads like <laughs> the Romans did. I know. <laughs> uh, that it was also something that, that allowed Christianity to spread so quickly, right? It really did. I think it was providential mm -hmm. at that time because you have Caesar Augustus in power unifying the world for the first time, bringing world peace, uh, suppressing the pirates mm -hmm. on the high seas so that there's open travel from one place to another. And then at the, uh, right around the same time, a little bit before, um, uh, a mariner discovers the trade winds so that you can travel on the high seas, you can get to your destination even faster. And what that means is that the gospel has clear roads to walk on, you know, and get to the four cor far corners of the earth. Mm -hmm. it's, uh, it's an amazing thing that happened. I think it was God's providence. Uh, you talk about the Donatist problem. What, who were the Donatists and what was the problem? <laughs> Why well, does that have to do with Africa? Uh, it's a movement that arose in Africa mm -hmm. um, around the time of the last great persecution, mm -hmm. the persecution of Diocletian, which is something that, that happened uh, on and off at first in the, the 290s, and then it, it really um, kind of heated up in the early 300s. Uh, 
and it was a, it was a ruthless persecution. It was a merciless persecution, and it was especially hot in Africa. Mm -hmm. And um, and what we find is that some people caved in. Right. They offered the sacrifice to the gods. They they uh, they paid homage to the the em emperor's genius, and they committed apostasy. Now you have a problem. Then um, how do you receive these people back? Right. Especially when they're clergy and they've done this. Mm -hmm. Now the church's way was the way of mercy. The Catholic Church's way was the way of mercy. You know, you do penance, you come back. And they even allowed some of these bishops who committed apostasy to come back. The Donatists protested that. They said, "Hey, look." My wife and her husband, they died for the right. faith. And you're saying now this guy's going to hear their confession? No, it's not going to work that way. So they, they, they walked off. Right. They did their own thing. And it became this rigorous party uh, and even a terrorist party mm -hmm. that caused a lot of um, uh, not only unrest in the church, but also civic unrest in North Africa. So it became a real problem for the first Christian emperors. Now you you have a chapter. You talk about the story of the Ethiopian eunuch, who we hear about mm -hmm. in Scripture. Uh, besides the fact that he's from Ethiopia, why did you bring that up? Well, because he's from Ethiopia, and that's an important point. Mm -hmm. Because what we know then is that he was he was in Jerusalem for the feast days, mm -hmm. right? So we have a, a evidence of a Jewish presence in Ethiopia, and not only you know a presence among the the rabble in Ethiopia, but a court official someone who's working for the queen herself right, right. Uh, and 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 he's faithful uh, to a Jewish heritage and returning to Jerusalem for the for the holy days that's a very important thing and and you, when you think about it he had to go home at some point and he took the gospel with him mm -hmm. so earlier i mentioned that in Carthage we don't know when the church began you know this may be the, those hidden beginnings of the church in Ethiopia. Mm -hmm. We don't know what happened when he got home. We don't have any written record of what happened when that guy mm -hmm. got, got back to Ethiopia. But we can be sure, if he got home, he told the gospel where he was. Right. And he was in a position where people would care. And, and listen, to have some as, influence, as you right. Certainly in the, those cultures of that day. Yes. So what would you describe with the special characteristics of the African Christianity in those first centuries? What would be special characteristics? There's this determined character mm -hmm. and a disciplined character and, and, um, and adherence to a very high level of morality. Now this isn't universal mm -hmm. and people sin and people fall and there's plenty of evidence of that. But there was, um, there was an almost fanatical devotion to the standards of Christianity mm -hmm. in North Africa. Many of the, the heresies and schisms that arose in Africa arose because of this determined quality to, um, to obey a high standard of morality and even demand heroism of uh, right. Christian, Christian believers. And, and it's interesting to bring that up because you make a distinction for people with the, the idea of schism versus heresy and that had to do with the whole Donatist thing, right? Oh yes, because, because they still held to the uh, articles of the creed, mm -hmm. same creed, same sacraments, but they, uh, they, they were separated from the church, they were separated from communion because they refused to take sacraments from clergy who had committed apostasy. Okay, very good. Africa and the early church, the almost forgotten roots of Catholic Christianity. Speaking of Africa, let's go to faith of the fathers. You always liked the early church fathers. I, I always uh, have. That's one of your personal likes there. Uh, first one, these are four different books. The first one I wanted to mention was on St. Augustine. Yes. So uh, 
Why is Augustine, we hear about Augustine a lot, is he the most important one? <laughs> well, he's one of the most important saints, mm -hmm. certainly, period, most, in, period okay. in, in, in history. And he's probably one of the handful most important intellectuals in all of history. He really laid the foundation, the intellectual foundation, for the culture that arose to take the place of Roman civilization when Rome fell mm -hmm. and Europe fell into the Dark Ages. He's not a European, he's an African, but again, we have then an instance of Africans setting the agenda mm -hmm. for the future of the church worldwide. Augustine is, he invented new genres of mm -hmm. writing, the autobiography and that sort of thing. If you study almost any kind of theology, right. he wrote some of the foundational texts, the Trinity on morality, on scripture interpretation, so many different fields of theology, he wrote the right. foundational texts, at least in the Latin. Is that what you mean world. by the term another kind of letter? If that's what he was writing, in a sense, those people, oh. the, 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 in a sense of an autobiography or a different approach. Now, also, you say that he was not attempting to write an exemplary life, but to repent of his sins before God and offering in place a different kind of confession, the confession of praise. What's a confession of praise? Well, a, a confession means just to speak out mm -hmm. loud, right? Mm -hmm. And and his book is addressed to God. It's as if it's, he's speaking out loud to God. He's addressing God in his book. He's not addressing you, dear reader. He's addressing the Lord mm -hmm. throughout the book. And I think he wanted people to be able to put themselves in his shoes mm -hmm. because he knew that his book would be read by sinners like right. him. Right. And he wanted their conversion as he had converted. And his conversion was long and arduous right. over the course of 17 years of, of sin and separation. Right. Well, what do you say, people say sometimes with St. Augustine, well, it's nice, he sold all his wild oats, had a good time, and then he decided to settle down. That must be a nice way to go about it. Well, Is that an know, approach to a good spiritual life? Well, no. When you read it, uh, the, all the time he's there, he's seeking pleasure. He's really in an agony. Mm. He's in a spiritual agony because he knew this didn't correspond to the truth, and he was a seeker after truth. Mm -hmm. And he would go to one place and then another looking for truth, and he thought that these Manichaeans, these, these strange, new-agey kind of uh, esoteric uh, religions from the East were going to settle things for him. But the more he dug into them, the more That's he found like they were wanting. That's like a dualism kind yes. of thing going on, right? Yes. Where what you do with your body doesn't really impact your spirituality. But that didn't we bring him about, happiness. We hear a lot about, that's kind of a very popular idea of a lot of people today, too. It keeps right? coming back. Right, yeah, yeah. absolutely. And this is, uh, you know, uh, this is what we see in the life of Augustine. Uh, but, but his life was so much more than his confessions because right. after that, you know, he went back home to Africa. He became a bishop right. and he became very influential in the church there. He became very influential in setting a model for how a bishop should work in the years that followed, the centuries that followed, because uh, the bishops often ended up in the Dark Ages, the most educated guys around. Right. That, as, 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 as uh, they, they provided as much government as you were going to get yeah, in some places. Right, that's, so that's St. Augustine. Another f faith of our fathers uh, focuses St. Irenaeus, uh, and he's, he's famous for what particular thing? Well, he's famous for his great work against the Gnostics. Right. You know, uh, the heresies. Against right. the heresies. So right. there were so many different kinds of heresy by the time he was alive. Right. He, w he probably dictated or wrote out this work, and, and, and it seems almost freeform. <laughs> you know, he's, he's saying what's on his mind, but he's engaging their works directly. Right. You know, so he's quoting from them directly, and he's addressing their arguments. So we can look at it really as the first work of the first work of, um, of almost systematic theology. 
You know, he wants it's to. The original pre- Catholic answers, basically. That's it. Is right. That's I, I, that's right. That's a good analogy. Yeah, okay. And 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 they have a good patron in him, I'm sure. So. Right. Or radio replies, if you go back even further. Right. As one memorable example, Hans von Balthasar goes as far to call him the founding father of theology itself. Yes, because he's giving a reasoned reflection on divine revelation. Uh, so he's he's responding to these people who are rising up within the church. Right. They're in error but they're rising up from within the church and then they become a parasite on the church. Right. Because really what they, they didn't evangelize. They didn't go out and try to convert the pagans to Christ. What they did was they tried to um, uh, woo orthodox believers away to their kind of Christianity mm-hmm. by trying to sell them something really. Right. And often it was literally selling them something, you know? You pay us enough money, we tell you the passwords to get past the archons when you die. Right, it's, uh, yeah, it's uh, their versions of uh, bizarre indulgences or something, yes. I guess. You know, Irenaeus loves his enemies even as he unsparingly dispatches with his arguments and errors that he actually loved the Gnostics. He did, he did, and as a matter of fact, we have a letter he wrote to one of his childhood friends who had become a Gnostic teacher, mm-hmm. and it's full of affection, and he draws on their, their common past, and he tries to uh, revive the memory of that for this guy, so they can remember, right. he can remember that they had sat together at the foot of Polycarp, who had sat at the foot of St. John the Apostle. Right. They were that close to the Apostles, and he wanted to, he wanted to bring his friend back to that example of Polycarp and the, 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 the doctrine that he taught. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he did it very effectively. I think he had not only love for them in an abstract sense, but genuine affection right. for them. You say against the heresies, the, that title, not only do these books contain, books one and two, a number of hidden treasures related to early Christian orthodoxy, but the reader will find in Irenaeus' descriptions of the Gnostic many parallels with contemporary errors, as we alluded to before, that can be held by our neighbors, our friends, and even ourselves today. I, I think that's why Pope Francis made him a doctor of the church. Mm-hmm. It was a very controversial move. He's been dead a long time. Mm-hmm. You know, why this sudden interest in him? But I think Pope Francis sees his importance for the day, the, the time we're living in now, right. because so many of the errors that are that are spreading so rapidly, uh, the the error of transgenderism, for right, example, right. these are Gnostic areas right. uh, errors. Okay, that um, that require us to accept this doctrine of uh, a body-spirit dualism. Right. Yeah, the yeah. ghost in the machine kind yes. of thing. Right. That's Saint Irenaeus, and that's Saint Athanasius. What's different about him? Oh man, what what a what a great figure. He's a figure of defiance. Mm-hmm. Right. He's a figure of boldness of. Uh, a certain uh, intransigence, a holy intransigence. You know, there's the the phrase that that uh, Constantius suggested to us: Athanasius against the world. Now, the the emperor Constantius was mocking him mm-hmm. by saying, "No one agrees with you, guy. Right. You know, no one agrees with you. It's you against the world here." Right. And Athanasius gloried in that because he was going to stand against the world if the world was wrong. And he saw that the world was wrong about something very important, which is the doctrine of the Trinity, Mm -hmm. the doctrine of the Incarnation. And if you get those two things wrong, you'll get everything else wrong. And everybody else is saying this is just an abstraction, it's just esoteric teaching, that kind Mm -hmm. of thing. Just go along to get along. And he wouldn't just go along to get along. So he was bishop for 45 years. He spent 17 years of, 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 uh, of his, mm-hmm. his time as bishop in exile, right. deposed in distant lands where he didn't know the language. So he, um, he really did suffer 
for the faith, but he triumphed, you know, right. uh, you know, because it was his, well, not his, it was the apostles' right. doctrine that prevailed over the, the great threat of Arianism. Right, right, because if Jesus isn't the Son of God, then there is no Trinity, right? There is no salvation right. as we know no salvation. Period. Right. Yeah. And also he talks about the doctrines of the Trinity, incarnation, and what makes Athanasius who he is. Um, he talks about the, you talk about the fact that these dead dogmas that he stood up for, that people are like, well, they don't really matter anymore. Right, he, right. And he stood up against the world because they do matter. And we've always got to do that. So we always have a model in Athanasius. Right. Uh, you know, uh, we don't have to be the kind of intellectual he was, but we should be as we should have as intelligent a faith as we can. Mm -hmm. Study should be part of our development. That's what he teaches us, really. Now, well, let's close off with uh, Saint John Chrysostom uh, from Fathers of the Faith. And he was a famous preacher, right? He was. As a matter of fact, his name, Chrysostom, is really just right. a nickname, and it means golden mouth. Really? Yeah, okay. golden mouth. So he got that nickname from the quality of his preaching, and he's probably the Christian most famous for preaching in all of history. Is, is that why he had so many adversaries and enemies? <laughs> you better believe it. Also because he had no filter. <laughs> Okay. So he, he didn't hold back from preaching, and sometimes the empress was sitting there right. in his congregation, and she heard him preaching against some of her favorite pastimes, mm -hmm. like wearing a lot of makeup, like uh, having an image of you placed in the town square and that kind of thing, and he would preach against vanity, and right. she, she took it personally. Yeah, you say he rattled a lot of cages. He did. Stuff like that. He okay, did. very good. That's Faith of, of the Fathers, all four books there. Mike, and also Africa and the Early Church, Almost Forgotten Roots of Catholic Christianity, plenty for people to dive into. Appreciate you stopping by EWTN's bookmark. All these books are available through the EWTN Religious Catalog, EWTNRC.com for all things Catholic. I'm Doug Keck. Thanks for joining us here on Bookmark. We'll see you next time.